Good morning. I am Daniel Battier, an adjunct fellow at Hudson Institute. And today, today we have two distinguished guests to discuss President Lula's leadership of Brazil. Marcio Coimbra is chairman of the Foundation for Economic Freedom in Brasilia, as well as vice president of ABRIG, the Brazilian Association for Government Relations. He has served in high-ranking roles in the Brazilian Senate and in APEX, Brazil's Trade and Development Agency. Matthew Taylor is Professor of International Relations at American University's School of International Service and is author of several books on Brazil and Latin America, including his 2022 book, Brazil, Brazilian Politics on Trial, Corruption and Reform Under Democracy. Uh, Matthew, so much has happened in the short time since Lula took office, it's easy to lose sight of some of the tumultuous events of the last few years that brought Brazil to where it is today. Can you provide our viewers a sense of how Brazil got to this point and what led to President Lula getting another opportunity to govern Brazil? Sure. Well, uh, first, thank you so much, Daniel, for the invitation to be here and to the Hudson Institute. Uh, it's wonderful to have a chance to talk about Brazil uh, and Brazil's prospects under the Lula administration. Um, you know, this is a huge question. Uh, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, but there's a lot to cover. Uh, our, our viewers will probably know that for 13 years, from 2003 to 2016, Brazil was governed by the Workers' Party, the Partido dos Trabalhadores, PT, uh, first under President Lula, and then under his hand-picked successor, Dilma Rousseff. Uh, they were, I think, by all accounts, extremely successful. They were helped along by the tailwinds from the commodities boom, the discovery of major offshore oil deposits, and so when Lula left office after two terms, uh, he, he left with an approval rating of more than 80% and uh, was able to uh, elect his successor, Dilma Rousseff. Rousseff uh, herself uh, made a name by expanding social programs, expanding the state's role in the economy, and passing some important anti-corruption legislation. The the issue, though, was that by midway through her first term, growth had begun to flag, political dissatisfaction climbed, uh, and the ebbing tide revealed some fairly dire corruption within the uh, Lula and Dilma administrations. And so as a consequence, for most of the past decade, Brazil has been mired in an intertwined three-pronged crisis, uh, an economic crisis, a rule of law crisis and a political crisis. The, the crisis really set off with street protests in June of 2013, and then it became layered over with the corruption investigations that are known in Brazil as Lava Jato. Uh, in English, we often call these the car wash investigations. And it turned into a rippling crisis of popular discontent with multiple demonstrations in multiple cities against the political system over the course of nearly seven years until the pandemic hit. And so in many ways, the pandemic was the only good reason for these demonstrations to begin to dissipate. Um, the, the protests and the pressures that were put on the political system by the Lava Jato investigations, especially between 2014 and 2016, contributed to what I, I think of as a mutiny of sorts within the legislative coalition that supported Dilma Rousseff. Um, many of the members of her congressional coalition were justifiably afraid of ending up in prosecutors' crosshairs. 
Uh, many of them felt that she was doing too little to curb the anti-corruption crusade. And this contributed to her impeachment in 2016. It put an end to 13 years of PT government. And she was replaced by her one-time ally and vice president, Michelle Temer. Temer himself uh, started off on a positive note, but was so weak and beset by corruption allegations within his first year in office that he was a lame duck for much of the two years that he spent in, in the presidency. And as our, our viewers will probably know, Lula himself uh, was jailed for nearly 20 months, uh, allegedly for receiving a beachfront condo as a gift from a construction firm that had ties to the state. Uh, so he was jailed in April 2018, uh, which under the terms of a law that ironically he himself had enacted, barred those with criminal convictions um, on appeal from office. And so this knocked him out of the 2018 presidential race and Bolsonaro uh, ran away with the election against Fernando Haddad, now the finance minister, but at the time Lula's stand-in. And, you know, um, there were a lot of uh, stories behind Bolsonaro's rise. I think most people would agree that it was a set of coincidences that was so unique that it would be hard to replicate that victory including an assassination attempt against Bolsonaro uh, that threw him off of the debate stage and allowed him to gain the sympathy of some voters. So uh, Bolsonaro began his term in this very unusual upset uh, election. After this upset election, he began his term with essentially a three-pronged platform. Uh, Anti-corruption, he hired the judge uh, who had led Carwash as his justice minister. Uh, pro-market, he hired uh, a market um, pro-market uh, finance minister, Paulo Guedes, and also socially conservative. And he was supported by evangelicals who may have made the most important difference in his election. Um, but as Bolsonaro faced corruption allegations of his own and particularly corruption allegations against his family, and he also failed to invest in pushing forward some of the economic platform that Geddes had advocated. Uh, he increasingly uh, grew distant from Congress and ultimately uh, began to lose support from across that the, the three-pronged coalition, essentially leaving him only with socially conservative voters uh, in his camp. So this was a, a group of voters that were extremely religious, gun rights oriented, family values oriented, but in some cases even anti-democratic. And one consequence of this abandonment was that Bolsonaro became invulnerable to impeachment himself and essentially became a hostage of the forces within Congress that are known in Brazil as the Centrão, the big center. These are the center-right and center parties that have controlled Congress for much of the past 35 years. Uh, these are parties that are often more mercenary than they are ideological. They tend to trade pork for policy concessions to the executive branch, and they used their leverage over, over Bolsonaro to extract a variety of concessions, uh, such as a so-called secret budget of very costly budget amendments that they could direct to their home districts. 
So Bolsonaro um, was not particularly adept at managing Congress. He also uh, got into verbal battles with the Supreme Court. Uh, he followed the anti-vaxxer um, platform during the pandemic and generally, um, you know, earned the enmity of a lot of Brazilians because of his anti-democratic pro-military regime rhetoric. Meanwhile, um, the Supreme Court decided to change its interpretation of the law, uh, which had allowed anyone convicted on appeal to be jailed. And with this decision, Lula was released uh, from jail after 580 days in prison. Three years later, the Supreme Court also annulled his convictions because of abuses by the trial court judge who had heard his cases. So Lula was free to run for president this time around, um, and uh, this set up a showdown with Bolsonaro, Lula versus Bolsonaro. Hard to think of two polar opposites that were more polar than these two. Um, so um, Bolsonaro lost the second round of the elections in October, more handily than many expected, but by less than two percentage points. Um, many at the time were concerned that he wouldn't relinquish office, um, and he made many feints and starts that, that kept people on the edge of their seats until he finally left the country uh, and went to Florida at the end of December, saying he wouldn't participate in the transfer of power at the inauguration. So democracy appeared to have survived uh, when Lula was inaugurated on January 1st with a very narrow mandate. Uh, but as we all know, on January 8th, Brazil had its own version of the January 6th uh, attacks, and um, Brazilia was rocked by demonstrations. Maybe Marcio was there at the time, I don't know, but uh, Brasilia was rocked by demonstrations that turned violent. Uh, protesters ransacked the Supreme Court, entered the um, executive branch palace, and also Congress. And the police and the military, and particularly the police from the federal district, did very little to uh, curb this, um, uh, these attacks. The, the big difference with the United States and the attacks that happened here on January 6th, of course, is that there was no vote count ongoing at the time of the demonstrations. Uh, but the ransackers' hope, hope seems to have been that they might trigger a military in intervention. Uh, that intervention never came, thankfully. Uh, and I think one of the unintended consequences of this is it did firm up support for Lula, at least initially. Uh, we have to remember that Lula was narrowly elected. He was by no means a, a beloved candidate, uh, even among those who preferred him over Bolsonaro. So that's sort of the Cliff Notes summary. Uh, it's hard to really sum up all of the many complex threads uh, of the past few years but they have not spelled the end of Brazil's 40-year-old democracy, uh, despite highlighting all of the challenges that that democracy has faced over the past decade. Thank you, Matthew, great summary. Uh, Marcio, I would like your perspective on how the Lula administration has uh, handled uh, the challenges that uh, Matthew outlined uh, during its first seven months in office. Uh, what is your assessment of Lula's presidency so far? Thank you, Daniel. First of all, thank you for the invitation for being here. Thanks for the Hudson Institute and 
thank you to Matthew, who has a terrific job uh, summarizing and analyzing Brazil, especially today for all of us. Here in Brasilia, uh, Lula won by a very narrow margin, like Matthew said. So he didn't have a clear mandate. So he was challenged by many of Bolsonaro's voters. And many of them, after the election and before the inauguration, they settled around army bases in Brazil, uh, asking for a military coup in the country, saying that we didn't have any clear elections, clean elections in Brazil, and that the election has been manipulated. Not has been proven uh, on that matter, and uh, all those people gathered on uh, on January 8th to try to initiate a military coup in Brazil. So they were not uh, very uh, well succeeded into that. And uh, more than 100, um, fi uh, 1,500 people were jailed after this demonstration in front of Congress, invading Congress, the Supreme Court, and uh, Palacio do Planalto, that's the, our executive branch. So imagine in DC, if you had an, an invasion in Congress, the White House and the Supreme Court, that's what happened in Brazil on January 8th. So it was a very, something very big and very important for our, our country since our democracy was at risk at that time. And uh, but fortunately, not happened, and we didn't have a coup at that time. And uh, Brazil followed uh, the next days trying to recover from that time. Now we have legislate legislative investigation on that day on what happened in the district level here in Brasilia and the federal level in our Congress. Besides that, on our federal police and the Supreme Court are also investigated what happened on January 8th, trying to find um, who was behind all this organization. We had also uh, some terrorist attempts uh, in our country uh, on, the, on the days before on the airport in Brasilia. So it was very difficult on those days because nobody in Brazil knew uh, what was going to happen if uh, Bolsonaro was going to push for a coup uh, with the military or if the military was going to do any kind of movement. And uh, nobody was really sure if uh, Lula was going was to be inaugurated. But fortunately, not happened, and democracy prevailed, and the country now has a new leadership. And this new leadership, since uh, Lula took office, had the first challenge with the January 8th attacks in Brasilia. So this was the first thing that this government faced. And I think it was a, a big step for a government that was just inaugurated and for somebody who has won by a little margin over 2%, like Matthew highlighted in uh, his uh, first comments. 
And uh, after that, Lula started to focus uh, first on the international level. So he's, he's been traveling a lot around the world, uh, trying to restate Brazil and a different level that was uh, left by Bolsonaro, who was a president who was never well liked in Europe and uh, Western democracies, especially because he took some uh, um, many uh, actions in the government that was not were not well seen uh, in an international arena. So this was the first step that Lula took, was the international trips trying to reinstate Brazil in the international community. So first step. Second step, it was the economy. So Fernando Haddad, who ran for president against Jair Bolsonaro in 2018, uh, took the economy ministry. So uh, many people, People thought that the PT uh, was not going to be fiscal responsible and uh, during his uh, Lula's term now, because uh, the PT, the Workers' Party, had never showed uh, very much indeed uh, respect to uh, fiscal responsibility. Uh, because this government and some other PT governments always overspent a lot in the past. So people were really concerned about what would happen. But if, if we look to Fernando's Haddadji, um, Fernando Haddadji's uh, uh, past work, like the mayor of Sao Paulo, we seen somebody who was a very centered who would respect a really well-balanced budget and uh, would do a good job in the Ministry of Economy. So he uh, was not well seen at first by markets, but now that he passed the tax reform, that he, spend, uh, he passed a spending cap, so he showed that he is a fiscal responsible guy and markets now are changing their perspective on on Lula's government on the economy so i think for the first months of the brazilian uh government lula's government i would say that we face the challenge of uh having a democracy questioned by half of the people after the election, we had the challenge of placing Brazil back in, in an international community. And we had the economic crisis after the pandemic as uh, something that was really also a big challenge for this government. And I see these as, as the three points that we see as the main challenges and the main work that Lula has done in the first six months. Thank you, Marcio. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the ways that the, um, uh, one of the uh, results of the Bolsonaro administration has been a court, a recent court ruling, uh, barring Jair Bolsonaro from uh, running for office until 2030. 
what what does this mean for Bolsonaro's future and for the future of his movement? I believe that uh, Bolsonaro is not a player anymore as a political character for the 2026 election, but there are so many people on the right wing that are not in just like Bolsonaro, but uh, people that are really nowadays um, much more um, much more moderate than Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro is a very much of a radical, and he uses that as a strategy to gain votes and to gain support. But the other figures that we have on the right wing and the center right of Brazil are more moderate politicians. And I believe that Bolsonaro not being a candidate in the 2026 election, I think it opens up a high possibility for the governor of Sao Paulo, Tarcísio de Freitas, who now during uh, the tax reform discussions um, discussed with Bolsonaro, uh, they, they collided their visions. Uh, Tarcísio de Freitas saying that the tax reform was important. Bolsonaro saying that the tax reform uh, should be rejected and Bolsonaro was defeated by Congress. And so Tarcísio de Freitas is looking like uh, the best name on the right now to run in 2026. But nevertheless, we have uh, Lula with a possibility of re-election 2026. And looks like Tarcísio de Freitas will wait until 2030 to run for president if he does. So there are some other names like the governor of uh, Minas Gerais, Romeu Zema, the governor of Rio Grande do Sul, Eduardo Leite. There are many names uh, in the political spectrum that could run in 2026. And we believe that Bolsonaro not being part of the ticket in 2026 is going to move things around. And But there is another thing that we should keep in mind. The control of the federal budget and the federal government is seminal. It's very important for somebody who's running for election and especially for the re-election. Bolsonaro was very unpopular in the country. He was not popular. He had 65% of rejection six months before the election. And even though he just lost by 2% because he used federal money, the government money in order to promote himself in order to get reelected. So I believe that if Lula is in control of the federal budget and if Fernando Haddad is balancing the budget now, they will have money to push Lula forward in 2026 and maybe he will be an unbeatable candidate because he will have so much power as the guy who controls the federal government in 2026. So we'll have to wait and see, but the sitting president in Brazil has always, ha has always an advantage uh, going against people who are running against them.
Matthew, one of uh, President Lula's uh, objectives on the economic front uh, has been to revive industrialization in Brazil after a lengthy period in which Brazil has been losing its uh, industrial capacity. Do you view reindustrialization as a realistic goal or are there other opportunities for growth that uh, Lula should be focused on? Thank you, uh, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll touch on some of the same points that that Marcio made, um, but uh, just you know, broaden your question a little bit beyond industrialization because I think we can only rethink about industrialization within the context of sort of the broader economic policy preferences of the PT. Um, and you know, beginning with your question, the PT has always been very much a pro-industrial party. I think it's important to recall that the PT has its origins in the industrial heartland of Sao Paulo, of course, not on the side of capital, but on the side of labor. Uh, but that being said, um, these industrial roots are very strong within the party. They haven't faded uh, much, especially even though agriculture's share of the economy has expanded enormously over the course of this century. Uh, even though industry, the, the share of industry within GDP has, has more than halved since the return to democracy from about 45% of GDP to about 22%, according to the, the World Bank. Um, but I think it's also important to keep in mind that the PT and PT governments, whether it was Lula 1, Lula 2, or Dilma 1, or, or especially Dilma 2, all of these governments have been torn between the kind of economic pragmatists um, and the hardcore developmentalists, the people who believe that and a very forceful, muscular industrial policy is important to to development and we're beginning to see i think some of this again in the lula administration uh in in the first and second lula administrations he had very pragmatic finance ministers somewhat like adaji uh, and then he also had ministers who were much more developmentalist pro-industrial policy very strong advocates for the role of the state so we're seeing a little bit of that again. I'd say at a lesser, to a lesser degree than in his first and second administrations. Uh, you have pragmatists. The vice president, Geraldo Alckmin, Alckmin is the um, minister of development, industry, commerce, and services. Adaji, as Marcio has pointed out, in the finance ministry, is, is sort of taking the pragmatic, moderate route. Um, but there are these elements within the PT that are very pro-industrial policy and they command state-owned enterprises. Most importantly, they command the BNDES, the National Development Bank. Uh, Aloisio Mercadante, the president of the BNDES, um, was one of Dilma Rousseff's most important advisors as she was undertaking a massive um, industrial development plan. And he is very much a dyed-in-the-wool industrial policy geek. Um, under Mercadanchi, <clears throat> this year, the BNDES announced a variety of new financing opportunities for industry. These include subsidized export credits, um, subsidized innovation and technology credits as well. And I think Lula, as he did in his first time in office, is really playing a little bit of both sides. Um, he made waves in June 
with a tax incentive package for the production of popular, um, what are known in Brazil as popular cars, low cost cars, the, the sort of the lowest um, value cars. And then again, last week, he called for subsidies to the manufacturers of white goods, of appliances. Uh, it's also very likely that the government will push uh, for a much bigger industrial policy program for what they're calling a green energy transition. And this, we don't really know many of the details, but this has been hinted at by a variety of government sources. It would certainly include things that have been uh, dear to industrial policy advocates in the past, like biodiesel, uh, perhaps more hydroelectric dams. Uh, the new element here is probably some um, wind energy as well. Meanwhile, Lula has also talked about watering down the privatization of Eletrobras, the big electric company that was privatized under the previous government. Um, the attorney general under Lula asked the STF to reject a portion of the privatization bill that allowed for the privatization of Eletrobras. Um, this was a bill that essentially took away some of the um, control that the federal government had, uh, the federal government's majority vote. And so you could imagine that the STF might actually uh, vote in the Lula government's favor. Um, and that would return majority control to the federal government. I think, though, that it's important to also remember that this is all part of a broader stance that Lula is taking, in part, I think, conscientiously early in his term to provide some red meat to his supporters on the left. And we have to think about this in the context also of his uh, calls for the end to tight monetary policies his um, promises to look into revoking central bank independence. Um, he also you know, has, has proposed a debt rene renegotiation program uh, for small debtors that I think you know, plays to the electorate, but also plays to the left. Um, and he signaled some weakening of regulatory agencies as well as a watering down of rules that he's already undertaken on the politicization of the directorships of state-owned enterprises. And you know, this, this was done in part to allow Mercadanchi to take over the BNDES. The law, the law had prohibited politicians from running state-owned enterprises. Uh, but I think it's important to keep in mind that by allowing Mercadanchi to take over the BNDES, uh, by changing the rules here, he's also opened the door to a repoliticization of the state-owned enterprises that had been um, barred in the wake of the Lava Jato uh, investigations uh, to get politicians out of state-owned enterprises. So um, you can see here that there's, there's an element both of economic policy preferences, but also of trying to find a balance between the more pragmatist and the more developmentalist members of his administration, as well as a political effort to really throw some red meat to the left. Um, at the same time, though, Lula is, is the essential politician. He is very good at the same time that he throws red meat to his base 
at throwing some red meat to Faria Lima, the equivalent of Wall Street. Uh, and we have seen some really important movements in this direction. Um, Marcio mentioned the tax reform, and I'm sure he'll, he'll want to talk more about that. Uh, but Lula has also um, you know, changed the fiscal framework that was in place to allow a little bit more spending, but at the same time, kept some elements of fiscal responsibility so that investors uh, aren't completely scared away. We just had the news this morning that Fitch has upgraded Brazil uh, one step closer to investment grade. It's still two steps away from investment grade, according to Fitch, but uh, you can see that this very pragmatic uh, approach to economic policy serves Lula well. So I'll, I'll wrap it up there. We could talk a lot about a lot of these issues, um, uh, especially the the always pressing fiscal issue in Brazil. But uh, for now, I think Lula has managed to triangulate in a very masterful way. Thank you, Matthew. And, and I do want to follow up uh, on tax reform. Uh, Marcio, uh, tax reform is something that has eluded previous governments. Can you talk about uh, what is in the tax reform package that is moving forward now and why it is so badly needed? Oh, yes, this is uh, very important. And this was made by the possibility and the master uh, of politics that Lula is uh, in the Brazilian politics. He always manages to triangulate throwing red meat, uh, like Matthew said, to different parts of the political spectrum, the market, the PT uh, base, uh, and some other parts of the Brazilian scenario, especially Congress. And uh, he managed to pass a reform that was uh, needed and discussed in this country for over 30 years. And so he scored that in the first six months of his government. So this is a big achievement for him and for his government now in Brazil. Because even though Bolsonaro had a, a very much more of a pro-market uh, market approach, he didn't deliver that much. He had much more of um, a base that would follow free market a ministry that would talk about free market, but they were not able to privatize a lot like they promised. They privatized just a little. Uh, they didn't manage uh, to have a balanced budget. And uh, even though they had a pending cap, they didn't uh, follow that over the years, especially because of the pandemic. So the tax reform was really needed and important. Our tax reform is good. No, it's not. But it's much better than what we had because what we had was a disaster. And what we had in the past, it's gonna stay in a transition for 10 years. And I think that is really important. We have a transition until 2033, until we have the whole uh, reform uh, implemented in Brazil. And we have a lot of side laws that need to be approved 
for this tax reform. <clears throat> so Brazil uh, is going to be much better because our system in the back in the in the uh, in the back was not good, but it's not an ideal tax reform for Brazil. It's far from being a tax reform that was needed in the country, but. We are in a democracy and it's good that it's like that because different parts of the countries, they discuss, they uh, have different results, different approaches. And we see uh, that we reached something that it's not good for everybody, but it's good for different parts of the country and especially for taxpayers because it made the system much more understandable for the people. So we have now tax that are not in the origin, but on the destiny. And uh, we're gonna have uh, the federal government and the state's government discussing together the amount of uh, tax that is gonna be charged in a council. So we have made progress in Brazil, but it's far away from, from uh, what the country needs right now. But like I said, it was 30 years of discussion. And on the political side, we have something that's really important at this time. We had the chairman of the House of Representatives, Artur Lira, the governor of Sao Paulo, Tarcísio de Freitas, and President Lula, and now I'm referring for the government, and uh, Fernando Haddad, as people that managed to stay together and uh, tried to find a common ground. So we had the left, we had the center, and we had the right acting together to find a way with a solution for our our country. And I think that's really important. And I think that is the big, um, the, the big step that legitimates our new law, because it's a law that was discussed with the right, with the center, and with the left, with the executive branch, with Sao Paulo's governor, and with the chairman of the House, Arturo Lira, who is a very important man in our political spectrum right now. Thank you. Uh, I want to turn to Brazil's role in global affairs. Um, Lula's first months in office were marked by uh, several statements and gestures that antagonized the United States and, uh, and many other allies. Uh, he repeated Russian talking points on Ukraine, defended and embraced uh, Nicolas Maduro, uh, has advocated for uh, other countries to abandon the U.S. dollar. And his position seems to go beyond non-alignment and in the direction of closer relations with China and Russia. Um, Matthew, what is, what is behind Lula's apparent uh, hostility to the United States? Uh, that's a very provocative question there, Daniel. I, I, I'm not sure I would say it's hostility to the United States. Um, I think it, it certainly is non-alignment and maybe even alignment to the interests of countries that are 
hostile to the United States. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that Brazil is hostile to the United States, um, despite all of the issues that you pointed out with Venezuela, with um, Russia, um, with, a, you know, a really massive um, uh, delegation that went to China. Um, and, you know, all of this um, is very disagreeable here in Washington, but um, I think we have to take it with a, within a larger uh, context or, or place it within a larger context. Um, you know, what's behind this? I think at the at the end of the day, um, it's some combination of uh, political contingency, throwing some red meat to his supporters on the left, uh, his party, which like many Latin American leftist parties has a, a relatively strong anti-American bent, um, a suspicion of the United States, a suspicion of our, our commitment to, to many of the things that uh, we claim to hold dear. Um, I think that there is good reason for Lula to have been ambivalent uh, about the United States on personal grounds. There is a feeling among much of the left that the United States played some role, um, and we can debate how much of a role, but played some role uh, in the Lava Jato operation. I myself don't you know, put much uh, weight behind those allegations, but I think that we have to take uh, to heart that some members of the Brazilian left do uh, believe that there were links between uh, the Department of Justice and uh, Sergio Moro and the prosecutors in Lava Jato. But then uh, I think much more compelling than either of those two reasons is a long tradition of uh, non-alignment within Brazil. And, you know, again here, we kind of have to think about Lula in contrast to his predecessor. Bolsonaro's foreign policy was really out of left field, uh, um, you know, by comparison to previous foreign policy in Brazil. There had been pretty um, strong continuity across all presidents uh, of Brazil from the 1980s to the present. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, Bolsonaro came into office. He nominated somebody as foreign minister who was not very well known, not certainly a senior member of um, the foreign policy establishment and represented a real break uh, in terms of Brazilian foreign policy. Bolsonaro also went hardcore in aligning himself to Trump. And by that, I mean, not the United States, but to President Trump, a very kind of personal alignment between the Bolsonaro family and the Trump family. Um, and so in some ways, what we're seeing here is a return to a more professional uh, Itamarachi driven foreign policy. And that's a foreign policy that um, for a generation now has been extremely committed to the belief um, that there is not much to be gained from subservience, and I use that word lightly, not, you know, in, in quotation marks, um, but there's not much to be gained by automatic subservience to the United States, that there's a lot to be gained by trying to um, play uh, different players in the multipolar uh, global um, environment, that uh, the U.S. democratic agenda um, in some countries is nothing more than a front for U.S. national interests, 
the belief that Western countries pick and choose from the rules of the global liberal order in ways that uh, benefit their interests at that particular moment in time. And I think perhaps most importantly, and this may explain some of the most um, uh, egregious examples that you pointed out in your question, that preserving Brazilian sovereignty means backing the sovereignty of other countries, regardless of regime type, regardless of regime behavior. And you can agree or disagree with that perspective on foreign policy, but, um, and I tend to disagree, but I think that the, the larger point here is that this is a tradition within Brazilian foreign policy that has been very strong uh, and relatively constant over the past 40 years. And really the exception to that rule was the Bolsonaro administration. The Lula administration um, is reverting to a tendency that's been present there for, for much of the past four decades. Marcio, what is your perspective on on this? Uh, do you do you uh, does Lula see Brazil's future with uh, with the the BRICS? And if uh, if so, how how should we think about that? I, I totally agree, Daniel, with what Mario said. Uh, I think he was very precise descri describing the Brazilian uh, foreign policy. As a, and a former member of the Brazilian um, uh, agency that promotes foreign trade uh, worldwide in Brazil, as a director of that agency, I can tell you that we had a really difficult shift during Bolsonaro's government. And I think it was it's very difficult for Americans to understand that. But I think that Mario put this in a very precise way because many Americans thought that Bolsonaro was aligned to the United States. So that there was a connection between Brazil and the United States and the Bolsonaro's government. And it was not. It was a connection between Bolsonaro and the Trump family. So Bolsonaro likes autocrats. He doesn't like the countries. So he it doesn't matter for him if a country is a democracy or not. It matters to him if he see that guy as a leader, as an authoritarian leader, and if that guy is his friend, so he's aligned. So he was very friends with Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary, and uh, he would... <clears throat> like some other places with autocrats like uh, Belarus with Alexander Lukashenko. And so when Trump uh, lost the election in the United States, Brazil uh, was not an, uh, a US ally anymore. So he moved the Brazil to Russia and he became friends with Putin. And then he traveled to Russia, he met Putin, and uh, regardless of his uh, connection with the United States. And it, since it was not a connection with the United States, it was a connection with Trump. And uh, after Trump lost the, that election, even the foreign ministry that Matthew uh, mentioned, he, he was fired from the government and he was replaced 
with another foreign ministry that would uh, justify the alignment with Russia because of fertilizers and, you know, uh, you can use any excuse, but the Brazilian was aligned during the beginning of the Ukraine war with Russia. And Putin said during the elections in Brazil that it didn't matter to him who would win the election in Brazil. He would have allies with Bolsonaro or with Lula. And really that happened because Brazil maintained the same international position for uh, regarding the war in Ukraine, regarding Russia, regarding the U.S., so Brazil stayed away from the US, the U.S. Brazil stayed close to Russia, even though Brazil doesn't say that the country supports Russia. And I think that for the U.S., Lula is much better than Bolsonaro because you know what to expect from this government. You know that the traditional Itamaraty people are running the Brazilian foreign policy, and you know what to expect from this government. So the U.S. can prepare itself to what is coming. And with Bolsonaro, you didn't have that. Things would move around very quickly, depending of, on who is in charge of the U.S. government, who is in charge of the White House. And he would shift from Washington to Moscow really fast. And it, it would be really difficult to make predictions investments on a long term, knowing that we had a president that was not trustworthy of his uh, words, of what he was saying. He didn't have a clear policy where he was going. With Lula, we know that it's not a policy aligned to the U.S., okay? But we can deal with that. We know what, what is coming from there. Uh, where the Brazilian foreign policy is going, and then the international community, the Brazilian partners, Europe, the U.S., Canada, and any other country, they can predict where the Brazilian foreign policy is going. So that's what I see in our foreign policy today in Brazil. Thank you. Um, Lula has been critical of the European Union's uh, environmental requirements uh, for an EU-Mercosur agreement. Uh, and in recent re remarks, he seemed uh, inclined to pursue uh, trade agreements with uh, Canada and South Korea and others instead. Uh, wh where do you see Brazil going on trade, Marcio? Well, Brazil is always looking for its interests. So Lula now uh, dealing with the European Union is uh, being very vocal, uh, saying that the European Union is uh, looking for ways to avoid a uh, free trade agreement between Brazil and the European Union. But uh, what we need to see, it's in a broader way, because I think he's playing cards in different levels. I think he is also dealing with the Ukraine issue, the Brazilian position in an international area, the BRICS, the, the relationship, the commercial relationship we have with China that is a very important right now because of commodities and agriculture.
culture in Brazil. So I think he's putting all the things aside and he's playing with the cards at the same time. We need to see that an European Union agreement is a very, very difficult to be put in place in Europe because you need approval of every country legislative body. So it needs to go around more than 20 countries in order to be put in place. And in here, in South America, in Mercosul, we have different opinions from Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, and Paraguay. Uruguay wants to set up a free trade agreement with China. A right-wing fr government from Uruguay is dealing with that right now. And it's this also could affect the Mercosur and European Union deal. But I think that at the end, if every player puts some interests aside, I think we can find a way for an agreement. But it doesn't look to me now that we are finding this common ground. I think Lula is playing with different levels, different agreements, different countries, and the war. He's also, he has the need to be an international important person. He wants to win a Nobel Peace Prize, trying to uh, find some common ground on Russia and Ukraine and end the war like he tried to did in the past with Iran. So I think Lula is very away from where he should be and he's stepping on some grounds that he doesn't know and that can also bring a very uh, problems that are very important for our country, damaging the deals that we've been negotiating with other countries like the European Union. This last question is, is for both of you. And uh, I want to get your sense of where there are opportunities for uh, closer bilateral cooperation between uh, Brazil and the United States. Um, and I'll just mention that uh, a few of the a few of the areas that were outlined brought, um, uh, in, I think last week by uh, Brazil's ambassador to the United States. Uh, she met, she mentioned uh, fighting climate change and boosting the green economy, uh, building supply chain re resilience in several in several areas, uh, and bilateral trade and investment flows. Uh, Matthew, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, th those are interesting. Um, the the last two economic ones are are difficult, but given that, uh, unfortunately, and I'm sure Marcio has a lot to say on this, but it seems to me that um, in many of the areas where our countries are, our respective countries are predominant, they are in some ways very extreme competitors. Uh, so I'm thinking like Boeing versus Embraer. I'm thinking about um, uh, sugar versus, um, you know, our corn producers. I think about, uh, you know, there are a lot of areas where we are rivals as much as we can be um, cooperative on economic matters. And then, of course, there is a very different mindset about um, industrial policy 
in the two countries. And I, I know that, you know, under the Biden administration, the U.S. has become much more industrial policy oriented, but it's still very different from uh, Brazil when it comes to the type of uh, government interventions that we're talking about. So in many ways, we're going we're likely to see just as much competition there as we could uh, cooperation. I I also just want to kind of piggyback on what Marcio said uh, a moment ago uh, in his comments, but I think it's important to point out that official Washington it was extremely, well, I'll use the Portuguese word, zangado, and uh, the translation is hard to come by, but bothered, disappointed uh, because of all that they had done um, many senior officials here in Washington and uh, senior officials on the ground in Brasilia went out of their way to ensure uh, that the U.S. perspective on a democratic handoff of electoral power from Bolsonaro to Lula was made heard uh, in Brasilia. And um, the fact that this was not, um, I think, appreciated by the Lula administration, or it was perceived as not having been uh, appreciated by the Lula administration, I think has thrown a little bit of sand uh, in the gears of what could have been an extremely promising administration to administration relationship uh, between the Lula administration and the Biden administration. Um, that being said, I, I think that alignment with uh, between these two countries on environmental issues and democracy is still possible, uh, but it is it is a very narrow path because of the domestic politics in the two countries. And so, for example, on the Amazon, I think most of our listeners have a very clear sense of some of the sensitivities that Brazilians have to any perception of American intervention in the Amazon and in Amazon related matters. And I think that extends over into many environmental issues that are not Amazon related. Um, and then I think in terms of democracy and democracy promotion, which would be another area where we might assume that there would be room for cooperation. Unfortunately, one subset of democracy is accountability, anti-corruption, and I think that there's still a lot of sensitivity within the Brazilian political system to anything that, that could be done um, on that front. And so, you know, there's these are very complex uh, issues and somewhat hard to thread the needle. And where does that leave us? Well, I think, um, unfortunately, as I've said repeatedly over the 30 years that I've been studying Brazil, unfortunately, I think it leaves us with person-to-person -person diplomacy. And that's not the end of the world. It's better than not having any contact at all, but to expect really major um, um, cross-governmental collaboration uh, is I think somewhat uh, unrealistic. And what we've seen Seen in the past is that ensures that the two governments really revert oftentimes to person to person, uh, agency to agency level cooperation, not so much grand initiatives. Um, but that can sometimes lead in to, to, to very promising uh, advances, you know, whether it's the NASA uh, 
boss being in Brasilia this week to talk about collaboration, sharing satellite imagery, suggesting partnerships, or um, on issues such as police to police collaboration on transnational organized crime groups that are proliferating in not just Brazil, but in many of the border regions of Brazil. I think that there is a lot of space for that kind of collaboration and cooperation. And so looking for small gains rather than kind of large uh, impact uh, initiatives is probably the more realistic way to go. But uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to Marcia. Thank you, Matthew. I think you covered it all. I couldn't say much more about it. And I think that the cooperation between agencies is uh, really important right now. We can uh, see uh, this possibility. And uh, on the democracy side, anti-corruption, I do not see a lot of um, possibilities because we had here a fight between the establishment, the corrupt establishment against the car wash operation. And uh, clearly who won that battle was the corruption uh, establishment in the country uh, overall. And uh, now, just like in uh, the uh, Operação Mãos Limpas, as we call the Italian uh, car wash operation during the 90s, we're seeing, we're seeing here the same thing. Now the establishment is going after the prosecutors, is going after the judges, is going after who investigate the corruption in Brazil. So it's a major change in the, in the, in the history of the country, the recent history of the country where you where we seen uh, prosecutors and judges going after uh, corrupt politicians in the past and now the corrupt politicians are against the judges and the prosecutors that's what we're seeing now as a reality in this country so i do not see any a room for a cooperation uh, with the united states in anti-corruption because this is not clearly in the Brazilian agenda right now. It was in the past, but it is not anymore. I see a really good possibility of cooperation in an environmental issues. That is um, something that this government says that is really important for him. And we have Marina Silva as the environment, uh, environmental ministry. And minister, and I think she can make a difference dealing with the United States and the United States policy on climate change, for example. I think this is something that both countries could work together. And also, the clearly, the personal relationships, like you said, Matthew, that can also can make a difference. Uh, when I was in Congress in the past, uh, after living in Washington for many years, um, building relations and friends in, in Washington, I was able to bring uh, Eduardo Bolsonaro, the son of former President Bolsonaro, to a trip to Washington to meet uh, with uh, politicians, senior official politicians, 
in the U.S. government, Congress, senators, representatives, uh, you know, secretaries, and uh, in the White House too, uh, at that time, in order to create a bond between the new administration that was uh, beginning in Brazil and uh, the U.S. administration. So I think we can rely also on efforts from different people uh, like me that in the past could also uh, create connections that uh, that could make a difference in the bilateral relations between U.S. and Brazil. Like me, there are many people are able to do that who stayed in Washington for a long time and Americans that are here in Brazil, former ambassadors that are able to do that connection between the two countries and that I think that's really important in order to outline policies, to outline common ground and to outline the possibility of a brighter future for both nations working together because we know that Brazil and U.S., Working together is something very important for the Americas because we have much more common ground that things that separate us. We are both country of immigrants. We are like big countries uh, in our continent. And that working together, I think we can achieve a lot. And working one with the other, I think we can uh, find solutions that are good for both countries. I see the US and Brazil as natural partners because of their history, because of their culture, because of their diversity. So I see the US and Brazil, if we make things right as a good partnership that is equally good for both countries. Those are great insights. Uh, Marcio and Ma Matthew, thank you very much for what has been an informative discussion. Uh, to all those who have tuned in today, thank you for joining us. Uh, have a good day.